Well, we're in this series on how to neighbor, and how can you not have a little bit of Mr. Rogers, you know, a beautiful day in the neighborhood, how to neighbor. And we jumped into this series a couple of weeks ago, and in that very first Sunday that we got into this uh, series, I, I took you to Matthew chapter 22, and we looked at that. And we started talking about, you know, it's how do you really neighbor if you don't even neighbor like the people in your own neighborhood? Now, it's bigger than that. Of course, it's broader than that. But how do we neighbor our neighborhood, just the people right around us? And I challenged you that day, challenged me because I told you I was doing a per- pretty pathetic job at it, is that we need to start by discovering the names of our neighbors. And I've got a lot of neighbors, and, you know, I could recognize them in a lineup, you know, if I had to. I hope I don't have to, but if I had to, I could. But I couldn't necessarily tell you their names. Now, uh, a pretty, uh, pretty important thing to do is to get to know the names of our neighbors. And then we talked about how we can not only start by discovering the names of our neighbors, but how that we can pray for our neighbors. That is something that God wants us to do, that we should do. Once we get to know them by name and we know their story, we know a little bit about their life, we can pray for them very specifically. We can make a list and pray for our neighbors and what their needs are. And then we can look. The last thing I shared with you on that day was that we need to look for ways to serve our neighbors, opportunities. And even before I had an opportunity to start serving my own neighbors, uh, one of my neighbors, uh, like three doors down on the same side of the street, uh, apparently had heard. I don't know how he heard, but he had heard that my father had passed away, and he noticed I was uh, gone for a few days and that my grass was a little bit higher than usual. So while I was gone, he came and mowed my yard for me. And I thought, that, well, that's a, that's a very, very nice thing. And then I started getting an idea. Well, I'm just going to you know, keep my car hidden, and maybe he'll think I'm gone a lot and I start doing it on a regular basis and you know, sort of cut down on my time. No, not really. I'm just, I wouldn't do that. No, I would not do that. Would want to, but I wouldn't. And then last week, uh, how many of you appreciated the message by my dear friend, Dr. Bill Hackett? Didn't he do a great job? Uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, talking about, you know, who is my neighbor? And, he, you know, Jesus tells this story about this priest and Levite and Samaritan and how all of that came into play. Now, according, according to God's plan, from the very beginning, God wanted it to be a beautiful day in every neighborhood. He really did. In fact, God created, when you think about it, the most beautiful neighborhood of all neighborhoods. He created this place called Eden, the Garden of Eden. And he just wanted through that garden to bless every person and wanted it to be a wonderful day in the neighborhood in Eden. And that's how God intended. That's how God created it to be. But then there became a problem. And what is the problem? The problem then is the same problem that we see today. And the problem was sin and Adam and Eve. Like our original parents, sin. They just did what we've often done and just said, I know what God says, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And through sin and disobedience, disobedience and rebellion and defiance against what was God's intended plan and purpose, through Adam and Eve, sin came into the world and it messed up the neighborhood. And it messed up a lot of lives, and it's been destructive ever since. And, and any time, I'm just saying, friends, any time you find sin, falling closely behind sin is always going to be selfishness. And whenever selfishness dominates society, neighborhoods become dreadful and people's lives become increasingly miserable. Now, today we're going to go into a a place in the Bible that maybe you didn't think that we would go to because you're thinking, you know, if we're talking about how to neighbor and, you know, we went to Matthew chapter 22 and we saw what that discussion was about and then what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, then maybe in this series... 
then what we're going to do is we're just going to hang out in the New Testament. But there's such a beautiful story and a beautiful example of how to love your neighbors and how to love people and how to set people above you that I could not resist taking us into the Old Testament, and we're going to see how that love can make all neighborhoods different and how that love can make all neighborhoods beautiful. And I want to take you to a place that a lot of you, maybe you didn't even know, was situated in the Bible, and I'm going to take you to the Old Testament book of Ruth, of Ruth. And, uh, you know, there's a book that precedes this, a little bit shorter, uh, you know, than that, but it's correlated. It's, it's called Baby Ruth. No, that's not true. That is, it's, that, I just made that up. That has nothing, I digress. No, there's Ruth. And in Ruth chapter 1, I want to jump right into this story, and it's a fascinating story. Now, you know that I love to read. It's no secret, and I can't just read one book. I wish I could. But the way my personality is wired up, well, I read one book. When you could do as I'm doing now, reading three books in one magazine. And so I'll read a little here, and then, I, okay, I've got to go to another. And I'll read here and here, and then a little bit. And you say, well, how can you go back and know where you left? I'm just able to do it. I can't, I don't understand why I do it. I just do it. I'm just saying. So the way that I've read most of my life, and I've read a lot of books, a lot of books by now, but I'm telling you my most favorite book that I've ever read is the Bible. You see, when I read a book once, I'm done with it. When I watch a movie once, I don't have to see it again. I know what happened. But there's something about the Bible that makes me want to pick it up every single day, and I do, and I just read, and I ask that God would speak to me from his book. And uh, if somebody says, well, I'd read the Bible, but the Bible is boring, then I know that person has never really read the Bible. Because you read the Bible, it is not a boring book. And you're going to see that this story today, and it's a real-life event, actually is not a boring story. And I'm going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1. This is Ruth. And listen very carefully. And I'm going to need you to track with me big time this morning. And so we want to minimize distractions. And we want to stay dialed in for these next few moments. Are you ready? How many of you are with me? Go ahead and wave at me so I know you're here. I know you're ready. All right, here we go. You're not going to see it on the screen. I'm just going to read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they went to Moab, which is not their home, and lived there. Now, Elimelech in tragedy now enters the story. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left now with her two sons. Elimelech is gone. They marry, because they're in Moab, they do not marry Israelites, girls, who is their heritage and culture. But living in Moab, they met and married Moabite women, one named Orpah, O-R-P-A-H, Orpah, and the other Ruth. And it is this Ruth that uh, is out of the Old Testament. After they had lived there about 10 years, listen, further tragedy, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, right up front in this Old Testament book, we notice this incredible, incredible tragedies that Naomi has to deal with. When this story begins, it is certainly not a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It is not. It is horrific. It is terrible. It is it's an awful story. I mean, that's how we started. And that's just the first five verses. And already we've read that uh, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two boys, uh, Malon and Kilion, have to flee from Israel because there is a famine in Israel. And they make their way to a place 
called Moab. While they're there in this foreign land, this foreign culture, among foreign people, Elimelech up and dies. And it's not too terribly long after that. In fact, 10 years after they came to Moab in the first place, after Melon and, uh, and Kilion has ma- married these Moabite women, these two sons die. So this is very, very, this is not a beautiful day. It's not only not a beautiful day in Moab, it's not a beautiful day back in Israel. Israel's history at this time was, was terrible. In fact, there's a phrase, it was not on the screen, but you heard me read it. In the days when the judges ruled, and at this particular time in Israel's history, it was a time of great violence, and there was lawlessness and idolatry, and God wanted to be worshipped as a one true God, but yet they were all these other gods that his people in his land were worshipping. These are terrible days, and added to what was already very disturbing, as I just mentioned to you, there is this great famine in Israel, And we read about this little family that they leave home, not because they want to. They leave what is familiar to them, not because, you know, they're looking for a great place to live, but they leave because they're going to starve if they don't. And they settle in this land called Moab. And although, although food and sustainability are found in Moab, Moab is not the place that would make the top 10 list of places that you would want to live, especially if you're an Israelite, and let me take a moment and just tell you why. See, the Moabites were grievous enemies to the Israelites. For the most part, all Moabites hated Israelites, and the Israelites were not too fond of the Moabites. In Moab, there was not the worship of the one true God. And again, that's out of sorts, even back in Israel. But they were complete pagans, and they worshiped idols, a pantheon, a multitude of different idols. Their chief god being a god uh, who had no existence, he was just an idol, but their chief god was a god by the name of Chemosh. And associated with Chemosh were all kind of horrible things that even if I had the time to talk about that, I don't know that I would want to because of the darkness and the depravity associated with the worship of this god of the Moabites, Chemosh. Now, then we're told in verse 3 that Naomi's husband and the father to these two sons dies. And then Naomi's heart is further crushed when at this particular time, again, 10 years after they've arrived in Moab, her two sons also depart this world. So here we find, and you've got to catch up to this, and I'm going to need you to just really stay fully, fully engaged. Forget this afternoon, tonight, everything's going on. Forget that for just a few moments. And I want you to think about Naomi. And I want you to think about her situation. She is truly a widow now. She is a widow indeed. She has no husband to care for her. And in that culture, it was not, you know, in our culture, you know, ladies are working and, you know, being very productive in the workplace and incomes and all of these other kind of things. This was not true in the ancient world as much. Not that it was non-existent, but it was very rare. And so now she is in a place where she has no education. She has no occupation. Her husband has died. Uh, her opportunity to be provided for, and then that would basically translate down to her sons. But now her sons are no more, and her sons, Malon and Kilion, and their wives, Orpah and Ruth, never have any children. So now there is no grandkids to even take care of Naomi. But I want you to notice a change in this story, and you're going to see this. This is still uh, chapter 1, the very next verse, verse 6. Look at this verse. It said, when she, she being Naomi, heard in Moab, there in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. Who are his people? Remind me. Who are his people? 
the Israelites, had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there, to go back to Israel. Now, her plans are to return home. She wants to go back to Israel. She never wanted to be in Moab in the first place. The only reason that she went to Moab was the survival of her family, but now she's going to return home. The famine apparently has ended, and the food is not as scarce. And a lot of times we don't think about, because we live in a land of superabundance, we don't think about the scarcity of food. We don't. But I want to pause here for just a moment, because just in case you have forgotten how blessed we are, I want to just let you know that it's, it's not always been this way. And it's really not this way in many, many parts of the world. Now, do you realize today that today, I'm not talking about in the ancient world, I'm talking about today, that today, one million people in this world, this current world, this current high-tech world, but the whole world is not high-tech, by the way, and the whole world does not have superabundance, but more than a billion people live today on less than a dollar today. You take an additional two billion people they live, who are living in this world right here, right now, they live on less than $2 a day, less than $14 a week. Do you know that today, today, in the next 24 hours, there will be in this world that we currently live in, there will be 21,000 people that will die today as a result of starvation. One person about every four seconds will die because of the scarcity of food. And then we forget that we live in a time and in a place, in a land of super abundance. I was reminded of that. You know, I mentioned to you that we had flown up to Illinois to be with my granddaughter. We have two little uh, granddaughters are so excited, you know, about going to see them. And and I'd arranged my schedule such and and, uh, I'd flown up on Tuesday. And so uh, I had flown from Tampa to Atlanta. And because I grew up in the um, in the Atlanta air, uh, you know, area, I know the Atlanta airport backwards and forwards. So I caught a connecting flight and landed in Bloomington, Illinois. How many of you have ever flown into Bloomington, Illinois? How many of you have, have done that? I mean, you know, being through Atlanta and knowing Atlanta's airport the way that I do, I was just expecting Bloomington to be a decent-sized airport. And it was all eight gates. And that's it, just just eight gates. And I'm like, you know, I'm... Am I in an airport or am I in a, you know, am I in a restaurant? You know, where I'm. And so I got the one bag that I checked in, had another small bag with me. And I walked out, you know, standing outside. It's a beautiful day. Felt great outside. I knew that my son was at work, but that my daughter and granddaughters were picking me up. And I'm so excited. I'm so, I can't wait. I can't wait to see my grandbabies, you know. And so they pulled up and I walked to the very back of the vehicle. I opened up the door to their SUV, the back door. And, and I looked, and I had two sleeping granddaughters. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe this. I've come all this way. I want to hug them, kiss them, and they're sound asleep. So Nicole, our daughter-in-law, uh, says, well, do you mind if we stop, you know, uh, at the grocery store on the way home? Because they don't live in Bloomington. Brant works in Bloomington, but they live out in the middle of cornfields in a world I did not even know existed. And so, can we go by the grocery store? And I've said, certainly. And so, we get to the grocery store, and she puts Landry, the one 
Uh, you know, our granddaughter, who will be one in December, puts her in the car and gets her strapped in. And Kenley, who just turned three, she can walk, of course. But I wanted to carry her. I wanted Paul Paul to be able to carry her around the store. I've not seen her for a little while. And so I'm carrying her around the store. And uh, I, I've loved this. This is how the trip started off. And I'm walking around. I'm just holding her. And she reaches her arms around my neck. And she squeezes really tight. And when she lived in Florida, she would say, Paul Paul. But now that she's living on the farm, this is how it came out. She squeezed me real tight around my neck, and she said, I love you, Paul, Paul. <laughs> oh, farm girl. She's turning into a farm girl. She's left the south or north, but now it's not Paul, Paul. It's Paul, Paul. And we walked around, and I, honestly, I mean, we're in this grocery store that was unbelievable. I almost took out my phone and just, I mean, the breads that they made, the desserts. I, I walked up to this deli case. It was unlike, and I've, I've been in some pretty nice uh, grocery stores. It was just glass case after all of these sliced great meats and cheeses. And, and it was like a, the produce section. I mean, every, I mean, just like super abundance, super abundance. But a lot of the world does not know that world. And in this case, they certainly do not know anything like this. They're going back. They're headed back to Israel. It's time to go home. Naomi cannot begin her journey back to Israel quickly enough. Her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, are with her. And, um, you know, you're going to see a tremendous amount of love play out here. Um, You see the scene. I mean, I ask many times when I want to better understand the Bible, I try to, and you've heard me say this before, I try to insert myself into the story. I just try to, you know, like I'm there, I'm watching this all play out. And so here is Naomi who's gone through unbelievable grief and tragedy in her life. She has her two daughters-in-law, and she wants to take them with her. I mean, she loves them. They love her, and they're Moabites. They're from Moab, but she wants to take them with her to Israel. And I think primarily, in fact, I would imagine 98% of the reason why she would like to take them back to Israel, and you're going to see this play out in just a moment in the story, is because she, she loved them so dearly. But you cannot help it if you're a normal human being to know that in the back of your mind that that may be her only connection to sustainability and to survival. Because maybe they'll get remarried, and maybe they'll take care of her, because she does not have a family back in Israel who's going to take care of her. She does not have, you know, Medicare or Social Security or 401K or a pension plan. When she goes back, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. So she gathers together. It's amazing how it plays out. She gathers together her daughters-in-law, and she says, hey, there's food. It's not as scarce back in Israel. The famine is apparently ended. Let's go to Israel. Let's go back, let's go back there. And so she gathers up Ruth and Orpah. And it's amazing. We know that Ruth becomes a part of the story and remains a part of the story. Otherwise, we would not have this Old Testament book called Ruth. And then there's the other daughter-in-law, Orpah. And Orpah, and I'll come to this, she's going to do what is reasonable, what, you know, Naomi actually would encourage her to do. And after she goes back to Moab, we don't, we don't hear again. We hear from Ruth, but we don't hear uh, anything about Orpah until years and years and years later when she has her own television program and magazine. Okay, I, I just digress. That's not true. That is totally not true. It's Oprah, Orpah. They're not, I, I just, I couldn't resist. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. But the three of them reach the edge of town, and now Naomi is having second thoughts. She insists, and this is where we see her tremendous love. 
she insists that these daughter-in-laws that she loves so much return to their own home. And it is really the sensible thing to do. I want you to check out these next two verses on the screen. This is chapter 1. Look at verses 8 and 9, right up here. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Go back home. They've just left Moab, headed for Israel. And then she says, May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead, to your husbands. You've honored your husbands and to me. May the Lord, look at this next part, may the Lord, and you see the love that Naomi had for these girls, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. You are good to my boys, and I pray that God would bless you, and I pray that you just go back to Moab, to the place that you know, to the people that you love, to your family, and I pray that God would cause you to meet other young men, and that you would be blessed through another husband. Then she kissed them, and what does it say? Read the rest of it with me, and they wept aloud. This is a very, very emotional moment, an exceptional act of love on Naomi's part. Orpah and Ruth represent her support. They represent to her survival. Again, there's no pension plans. She's not going to be able to go back to Israel and sign up for Medicare. Nobody's paid into Social Security, and she's not going to be able to collect it. Naomi looks at these girls, and although she so badly wants them to go back with her to Israel, she knows that she has nothing to offer to them except for the freedom of the burden of having to care for her. But amazingly, Both girls initially insist on going with her. In fact, I'm going to read several verses right here, and I want you to stay really dialed in. How many of you are still with me? How many of you are still in the story? Wave at me so I know you're here. I'm going to read several verses, and I want you to listen to them very carefully, what has happened. I'm picking up at verse 11. But Naomi said, she says this a second time, Return home, my daughters. Go back. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughter. She says it again. Go back. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, even if I could go like to Vegas right now and get a wedding. Well, there wasn't Vegas, so uh, again, I digress. But if I had a husband tonight, even if I could get married right now today and give them birth to two sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. She does not realize, Naomi does not, that God is still watching out for her. And you're going to see this. The Lord, hand has gone out against me, she said. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And then, in an amazing fashion, what I think are some of the most profound words in all of the Old Testament, this is what happens next. Lord said, Naomi, And she's speaking to Ruth now. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. And she says, this is now, like four times, go back with her. Go back with her. Just go. This is, you know, I want you to go with me. You don't know how much I love you, but, and I want you to go with me to Israel. But it is best for you. I want to put you, I want to love you above me. And I want you to go back to your home. I want you to go back to your family, to your people. And I'm praying that as you go back, and she's saying, Ruth, I mean this with all my heart. I pray that when you go back to your people and to your family, that you would meet a man who would take care of you the way my husband, my my son, took care of you. And that you would be blessed. And then some amazing words. But Ruth looked back at her and replied, 
Don't urge me to leave you. Don't tell me again to turn back from you. And then she utters these amazing words. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. And she's just like saying, you know what? Don't even say it. Naomi, you're wasting your breath. You're wasting your breath. You know, I love you so much. And now, you know, we've seen the love in Naomi for Ruth and for Orpah, who's saying, you know, I'm going to put you above me. As much as I'd love for you to go back with me, you go back home. And now we see that the love that Ruth has for Naomi is even more striking. It's even more shocking. I'm not. Say whatever you say, but you're never going to talk. And then she says, where you go, I'm going. Where you stop and stay, I'm stopping and staying. Your people, Naomi, I know they're not my people. My people are Moabites. Your people are Israelites. But your people will become my people. And furthermore, Naomi, I want you to know your God is the one true God. And I want your God to become my God. And I hope that you do not miss the enormity of what is playing out here. The great love that Naomi had, but the act of love on Ruth's part is even more staggering. She would love her neighbor as herself. She would love her mother-in-law and put her mother-in-law above her own life. She would die to herself in order to care for Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. I told you I liked to read a number of years ago. I picked up a book. It was called Who Cares About Love? And in it, I saw what I think is the greatest definition for love I've ever seen. It's on the screen. I want you to take a look at it. It's the best definition of it I've ever found. Love is intentionally doing something caring or helpful for another person in Jesus' name. Read the rest of it with me. Regardless of the cost or consequence to oneself. What Orpah did was reasonable. What she did was expected. What she did was rational, and the Bible does not criticize Orpah at all for doing what she did. She went back home. It only made sense. But the way in which Ruth responds is unreasonable. You know what Ruth is doing? Ruth is betting everything on love. She makes a striking decision, and there's not a chance that Naomi will be able to talk her out of it. Now, I want you to listen closely. To verse 22. Verse 22. This is still in chapter 1. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab. Remember, she's been living in Moab. How many of you are still with me? Wave at me. Wave at me. So I know you're here. So she returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth. And then listen to now the designation. She is accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Now, why does that matter? Now, if you've ever read this story, I don't know that you've noticed that. You read it, but I don't know that you necessarily noticed it. Because in Moab, Ruth was simply Ruth, but now in Israel, she is Ruth the Moabite. In Israel, she's a foreigner. In Israel, she's a Gentile, an outsider. She's not Ruth anymore. She was Ruth in Moab. But in Israel, she is Ruth the Moabite. Let's pick up, and this is, uh, this is chapter 2 now. And verse 2, they get settled in, they get settled in, and uh, they're back in Israel. The famine is ended, but that doesn't mean that they have food. Again, there's nowhere to sign up for any kind of assistance. There's not any help. 
And so there's only one thing that you can do. Now, I won't take the time to go into it, but in the Old Testament, it's a beautiful thing that happens when people choose to become generous. And, and people like challenge to be generous. And to a farmer, it would be said, hey, when you, when you go through your fields during harvest time, you don't have to take all of the grain. When you collect olives for olive oils, for olive oil, you do not have to get all of the olives. When you go out into the vineyards and you collect grapes, don't go back over. You see this. Don't go back over the vines a second time. Leave the remains of the grain, the olives, the grapes, whatever it was. You leave that for the poor. You leave that for the poor. You leave it for the widow. You leave it for the orphan. People that God cares a whole lot about. So there's a lot going on in this story. And I don't have enough time today to get into all of this. But this is, again, a great place to convey any time, any time that people act with great generosity. Good things are going to happen. Neighborhoods are going to get brighter. Neighborhoods are going to get better. People are going to get loved. People are going to get supported. People are going to get helped. And there would be these generous farmers who would just say, you know what? I don't have to collect all the grain. There'd be these farmers that says, I don't have to get all of the olives. I don't have to collect all of the grapes. I'm, I'm going to collect. I'm going to harvest, but I'm not going over the fields a second time. I'm going to leave what is behind for the poor, for widows, for orphans, for those who have great need. Now, I don't know a lot about harvesting. I, I really don't. I grew up in Atlanta. I mentioned that. Now, how many, how many of you, how many of you uh, have ever driven through downtown Atlanta? Could I, just, could I just see your hand? You have driven through. And it's okay. It's not going to offend me. I know it's my home, but you're not going to offend me. How many of you pray you never have to do it ever again? You just don't want to do it again. Now, have you noticed anything about my city? Have you noticed that when you're in the perimeter, you know, you know maybe you were driving, uh, you know, north on 75 or 85. Maybe you took the perimeter 285 around Atlanta. You were driving through the city. How many of you notice as you drive through the city, there are not a lot of farmland in Atlanta? Not a, I, and that's, that's how I grew up. So it was like a whole different world when I, you know, what has been almost two weeks ago, I fly up and I could tell when I was flying in, I'm, I'm, I'm not, this is not Florida. This is not Atlanta. Because all I could see is fields as we were getting ready to land and an occasional house. And then I saw all these windmills. And I'm like, I am going to another planet. I have not seen a planet such as this. And then I had the opportunity because our daughter-in-law's dad is a farmer. I had an opportunity to do something that I've never done before. I've had a lot of experiences in my life. But in my whole life, I have never ridden in a combine. I've never. How many of you know what a combine is? I've never ridden in one of these. I don't know what these things are. I really don't. Now, how many of you are glad I said I rode in a combine and did not drive a combine? That's a whole different story. I took Kinley, and we crawled up into this big combine, and a couple of seats there. I sat her in my lap, and Nicole's dad was there. And, and so we started. I asked him. I said, well, I know it's harvest time. Obviously, you guys are, you know, full speed. I said, you know, how much corn do you have planted, and do you have to harvest? He said, about 1,000 acres. I said, really, 1,000 acres of corn? He said, yeah, when we get through harvesting that, we've got to harvest a 1,000 acres of soybean. And I'm like, oh, man. And I sat in this combine, and I have a new appreciation. See, I just thought that you walked into Publix or Aldi and stuff, and it was just there. <laughs> and then I just watched, and, you know, this machine, eight rows of corn at a time, 
just knock down these plants, strip these cobs, just kick these kernels into the back of this big combine, which was putting it into another truck who would carry it to the semi, who would drive it over to the, uh, the elevators or whatever, wherever they drove it. And I just thought, man, that is unbelievable. And I thought of this story. And for anybody that was generous, and by the way, her dad is a really, really generous guy. You don't have to take it all. You leave, you help. So Ruth will go to the fields, and do you remember what she says? She says, this is Ruth. I'm going to the fields. I've got to find some food. And as I go to the fields, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look. Listen to the language. I will look for anyone in whose eyes I found favor. And God arranges it so. You remember what Naomi says to Orpah and to Ruth before they leave Moab? Hey, um, you know, my situation is so bitter, so bad. You know, I think God has forgotten about me. But God had, God had not forgotten about Naomi because when Ruth said, you know, I'm going to go into the fields. I'm going to find something to eat. Perhaps there's a generous farmer around here. And I'll wander into a field. And that farmer, I'll find favor in his eyes. And of all the fields she could have walked into, you think about this, friend. You think about this. Tell me that God was not a part of this story. When she wanders into the fields of a farmer, a landowner by the name of Boaz, she goes about her task. Boaz notices Ruth, and he walks over to her. And he says, you know what? It's not a real, you know, a, you know, real safe place to be, you know, when you're hanging out and among all of this. It's not a safe place to be, but I've taken note of you, and I've asked my men to watch over you. And you're going to be safe. You just stay with him, you're going to be safe. Nothing's going to happen to you. No evil, no wrong's going to befall you. If you need something to drink, just let the guys know. And, you know, instruction, leave and... So she threshes out the grain, and she, she leaves. The Bible says that she left. In, in fact, let me, let me read this to you. This is actually Ruth uh, 2.17, and l- let me just read what it says. Ruth 2.17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. You say, an ephah, really? What's an ephah? Where do I get that? Walmart? Where do, where do I go to get an ephah? And an ephah was actually approximately 29 pounds of grain. I want you to notice something really incredible here. It does not matter, it does not matter to Boaz that Ruth is a Moabite. And when I think about that, I think about how that is so like God. God is a God of love, and God never sees people based on their net worth. God never looks at people and say, says, well, you know what? They've got a lot of money, and they have nothing. God just sees his people, his creation, his kids. God never sees people based on their place of birth. He never looks at them based on their occupation or their skin color. When God sees people, God just sees people who are equal, and he loves them all, and God never sees us in them. God never does. God's intent is to bring unlike people together in love. And she wanders into the field of Boaz, and she threshes out the grain, and she collects it. And it's an ephah. It's about 29 pounds of grain. It was valued at, at what Bible scholars would say was about a, a month's wages at the time. And she gathers it up, and she takes it all home to Naomi. And Naomi says, what are you doing with all this grain? Where did you get all of this? And she said, well, you know, I, I prayed that God would lead me into a field in whose eyes I would find favor. And hey, there was a guy, and, and he came and he spoke to me, and uh, he told me that his guys were watching out for me, and if I needed anything, to just let him know. And he sent me home with all of this grain. And his name is Boaz. 
And she says, Naomi does, Boaz? Boaz? Really? Because Boaz was a distant relative of Naomi's. And then she thought about this, and then she looked at all this grain. And she looks at her beautiful daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she says, Boaz has chosen to be generous. He wants to take care of us. But then Naomi has a thought. Perhaps Boaz has something else on his mind. Beautiful Ruth. So you read the story. And what Naomi actually starts doing is she actually starts giving, if you can believe it, Ruth dating advice. And she says, all right, all right, I know, I know this guy. I've not seen him for a long, long time, but Boaz is actually a distant relative. And this man, he will not stop until he sees this through to complete. And she gives him dating advice. Strangest thing, strangest thing. She said, here's what I want you to do. He'll be threshing grain later today, and then he's going to lay down and go to sleep. And when he goes to sleep, you know, he'll be covered up with a blanket. There's not, you know, central heat, central air, all this kind of stuff. He will lay down. There'll be a blanket over him, and you go and you lay down at his feet. How many of you ladies are glad that we don't have to take all of the Bible literally? You just go and lay down at his feet, and you take that blanket that's over his feet, and you just lay it. Now, do you know in that culture, and I don't have a lot of time to go into this, in that culture, in that culture, what that was is that was actually a proposal of Ruth to Boaz. You just, she's given dating advice. When he goes to sleep, you just lay at his feet, pull the blanket, and that was symbolic, you know, like a proposal. Would you sort of like care for me? Will you? Take care of me. Nothing, nothing, you know, nothing romantic, nothing. It was symbolism. It was nothing physical. It was just, hey, I'm proposing. Well, she she does that. And uh, let me me read another verse. We're wrapping up. This is uh, chapter 3 and verse 10. Now this is Boaz. I love Boaz's response. He said, The Lord bless you. This is after, like, she proposes to him. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, talking about her care and love for Naomi. And then he says, I love this, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. He's feeling, hey, let me just say it, Boaz is feeling quite excited now. He's feeling pretty good. She's interesting. She's young. She's beautiful. He's feeling pretty good about all this. It says afterwards, this is verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? I'm not going to provide any commentary here. Just see if you can read between the lines. How did it go, my daughter? <laughs> Tell me. Then she told her everything Bo- Boaz had done. I'll jump ahead and we close. Boaz and Ruth gets married. And Boaz is very excited. And Ruth is very excited. And they get married. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood again. There's generosity. And people are getting blessed. And people are getting loved. And people are getting cared for just like God wants it to be. A little while later, Boaz and Ruth have a son. I don't know what they were thinking. I I really don't. But they said, well, let's name this boy Obed. What a great name. Obed. Oh, bed. I, I, I don't. I don't know. And then later, Obed grows up, and Obed has a son. 
And one of his sons is a guy by the name of Jesse. And Jesse grows up. And Jesse has a son. And Jesse's son actually becomes a king. Do you know who that king is? David, King David. Boaz, you see this? Boaz, Ruth get married. Obed's born. He grows up. Jesse's born. Jesse grows up, gets married. And then David, King David. And maybe you always thought that that David was full-blooded Israelite, but he was not. He was partially Moabite. And then later, we read that there was a descendant of David. In fact, they called this king the son of David. And do you know who that was? That was Jesus. And it's like God is saying, Naomi, I haven't forgotten about you. I love you. I've got a plan. Ruth, I haven't forgot about you. Naomi, I see how much you love Ruth. Ruth, I see how much you love your mother-in-law and arrange that she would just somehow, somehow wander into the field of Boaz. And through this genealogy would come the Savior of the whole world. God is looking out for you. God cares about you. God has not forgotten you. God has not forsaken you. Because the God who created Eden wants it to be a beautiful day in the neighborhood again when people love people more than they love themselves and they care for people and it becomes bright and beautiful and there's love. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Thank you, God. Thank you for that kind of love. Who would imagine? Who would imagine, God, if we started with Jesus and started working our way back, that we'd go back generations and we would find David and we'd find Jesse and we would find Obed and we'd see that it all got started with a beautiful little widow named Ruth and Boaz and that you would care for your people and you care about us. Help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Help us, as we saw earlier, to love people in the way that we don't even worry about our own consequence because we just demonstrate such great love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us truth today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, and I love you. Have a great week. See you right back here next Sunday.